pray that our ears and eyes may be open to the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that our hearts will be softened to accept and apply what you have for us to learn today. Amen. All right. The last lesson in 1 Thessalonians. An unscrupulous person once said, the most important thing in learning to relate to others is personal honesty. Once you learn to fake that, everything else is easy. Unfortunately, many seem to follow that philosophy. One of the most discouraging aspects of modern living is the low level of ethical behavior on the part of many, including those who profess to be Christians. Those who go regularly to church and profess to believe the Bible often seem to go along with practices of the world around them with hardly any awareness that what they are doing is totally unbiblical. They lie without hesitation, evade paying their bills, cheat on their taxes, ignore the needy, fail to keep appointments, lose their tempers, grow critical and caustic, desert their mates, and on and on and on. If the Apostle Paul were here today, he would be extremely concerned, to say the least. To him, the mark of true Christian faith is that it changes everything you do and say. It affects every single area of your life. A Christian may no longer act as if he had never come to Christ. This is very clear in his letters. Every letter he wrote ends with pointed, practical applications to daily situations of the truth he had set out. The first letter to the Thessalonians is no exception. The closing verses of chapter 5 are wonderfully practical guidelines on how to live the Christian life in three areas. First, how to act toward the leaders of a church. Second, how to live with other believers. And finally, how to live toward God and respond correctly to your circumstances. The church is the most blessed institution on earth, the only one built by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the only institution he promised to build and to bless. The Apostle Paul described the church to Timothy in 1 Timothy Timothy 3.15, as the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. However, those powerful descriptions don't mean the church is free from difficulties. Why? Well, because redeemed sinners within the church are still battling with fallen flesh, and some members of the church are spiritually immature or even unregenerate. The church faces challenges and deals constantly with sin problems. Only as it recognizes and confronts the weaknesses, imperfections, and difficulties caused by sin does Christ's church begin and continue to grow spiritually. The church at Thessalonica was a church successfully striving toward holiness. Paul didn't point out any outrageous sins or false doctrines, but he did encourage the believers that there would be a sanctification process. There was room for additional growth. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. 
They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peaceably with each other. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. What is being taught here is respect those who labor among you and stand before you in the Lord. Paul is referring to those who stand in front and lead the entire group. There is no suggestion of anyone being over or ruling others because as Christians, we are all brothers and sisters. Rather, they are leading. Paul is saying, follow your leaders. First, we are to respect them. The word in Greek, O-I-D-A, really means to know them, recognize them, be aware, and don't take them for granted. Church leaders are not our indentured servants. They aren't there to respond to the, to the whims of the people they, they shepherd. If our leaders are not given the respect due them, then shame on us. We are charged to get to know our leaders and understand that they are people who deserve honor because of their position of leadership among us. Secondly, Paul charges us to esteem our leaders very highly in love. In other words, value them. While some leaders naturally draw out more affections than others, we are to deliberately demonstrate self-sacrificing love to all of our leaders, not just those who are lovable or personable. Even though some have their own personal idiosyncrasies that may be hard to handle, recognize that their work is important and they should be prized for that reason. Sincerely pray about those traits and characteristics in some of your leaders that rub you the wrong way. The Lord has a way of dealing with his people, and more often, it's through our prayers. Oh, and don't be surprised if the one he changes is you. Paul admonished the Thessalonians to demonstrate this special appreciation, even if their leaders weren't necessarily admirable, because of the contribution they made to other believers. Even if a leader only made a small contribution, he should be appreciated and respected for his service because of his personal activity and because of the intrinsic importance of his work. Such an attitude would enable the Thessalonians to continue to experience peace in their church. This brings us to Paul's third exhortation to live peaceably with each other. In context, this is related to his instructions on how to treat church leaders. It suggests a deliberate refusal to create disharmony over individual leaders of a church. We are not to group around one person at the expense of others in leadership. We're not to play favorites and attack others. The bottom line is that leaders have been appointed by the Lord regardless of the human process by which they were chosen. That doesn't mean that they can't be approached if they are in error, but that it should be carried out in an orderly and, res and respectful manner. Ultimately, those who are in leadership are directly responsible to God for the lives of the people he has given them to shepherd, and they will give an account to the Lord for how they, fulf they fulfilled their ministry. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy Encourage those who are timid. 
Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Verses 14 and 15. Paul isn't saying this just to the leadership, but to every believer. This is how each of us is to live amongst the church body. We're responsible to minister to one another. There is also an urgency. Paul says, we urge you. There is a sense of coming alongside someone and helping them. He points out three distinct types of people. The lazy, the timid, and the weak. First, warn those who are lazy. The word is literally the disorderly. Those out of step with the rest of the crowd. Those, these are people who don't understand spiritual duty. They don't use their spiritual gifts for the good of the church. They are those who don't get involved, don't give as the Lord has prospered them. It may be that they just don't care, or they're angry, rebellious, or contentious. They're just not supportive, not a part of what's going on. This is a culpable laziness. These folks want to sort of hang on the fringe. They don't want to become too involved. They don't want to have any accountability. That's intolerable conduct in a growing church. Paul tells us to admonish them. Tell them to mend their ways. Don't let them go on in that manner. Come alongside and point out to them that this kind of behavior is detrimental to them and to the life of the church. Ladies, the wording used here doesn't carry the idea of judgmentalism. It's not criticism from a point of superiority. It means coming alongside someone closely and intimately and showing them the consequences of their conduct because you want the best for them and don't want them to reap the consequences of their actions. Second, encourage those who are timid. This is a combination of two Greek words that translate into small souled. This is a person who feels inadequate and ungifted. They feel out of it and think they don't belong and can't contribute anything. We are to help them find their place. In the wonderful picture of the body at work, 1 Corinthians 12 says, if the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I am not a hand, does that not make make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I am not part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? The logical answer is, of course not. There are people among us who feel that way. They falsely believe that they have nothing to contribute, that they don't have any gifts. That is wrong thinking. God has equipped all of his people with gifts. We are to help each other find our place, give them something to do, and encourage them in their work. There's no getting around the fact that we have to speak to people. We have to become involved in their lives. We have to develop relationships so that we can comfort, strengthen, and cheer them on. Then finally, take tender care of those who are weak. This means especially those whom Romans 14 describes as being weak in the faith. 
This person doesn't know very much about the doctrine of the Christian life. They haven't learned the truth that sets them free and need extra help. Perhaps they aren't sure of their salvation or they feel guilty about the past and don't sense they have totally been forgiven by God. Ultimately, they don't have a strong enough faith to experience all of the liberty and freedom that belongs to them in Christ Jesus. The word is to help them, to hold them fast. That demands extra effort. A phone call, perhaps, an invitation to coffee or lunch or a quiet talk about their needs. Again, ladies, this requires us to reach out and get to know people, to get involved, to build relationships so that we can be of help to them in their Christian walk. Paul delineates three special attitudes required to help us deal with these people. Be patient with everyone, see that no one pays back evil for evil, and always try to do good to each other and to all people. Patience is a willingness to keep trying over and over and over again. It's easy to get frustrated, to get disappointed and discouraged with some people. You give so much and you get so little. I know I've had that happen in discipling relationships in the past. These relationships can be heartbreaking. What does the Lord say about this? Be patient. How patient? Well, more patient than you've been. As patient as God is with you, that's pretty patient. Non-retaliation means that you do not strike back and try to get even with someone who may have hurt you in the process of helping them. The most painful treatment is wickedness, not from the world, but from our brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's the deepest pain, and our Christian faith must work at this level. People are going to hurt you. That's a given. They'll harm you directly by attacking you face to face. They'll harm you indirectly by gossip and slander to others about you. Sometimes they'll shut you out of their fellowship, eliminate you from their social circle, or keep you out of their ministry. I'll bet most everyone in this room has felt this hurt at the hands of someone they have been close to. What are we to do about it? Well, we don't retaliate. There's no room for retaliation anywhere in the church. The only one who has the right to retaliate is God. Listen to Romans 12, 19 through 21. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Ladies, the bottom line is God has your back. Don't be overcome by the evil done to you, but overcome that evil with the good you do to them. So how do we treat those who do evil to us? We pursue diligently that which is good, beautiful, noble, and excellent. 
In spite of everything, we go out of our way to do what is good for them, to do what is noble and excellent for them. In an act of love, we return their hostility with goodness. Paul wraps up by exhorting the Thessalonians to always try to do good to all people. In the course of our daily lives, we should be aware of what good we can do for people. We need to act kindly towards others. It can be as simple as a smile and a greeting, holding a door, helping someone with full hands carry something, getting something from a tall shelf for someone, now, those who are vertically challenged are excused from that one. Or it can be more time-consuming, such as answering a summons for help in the midst of an already full day, or setting aside your list of things to do to serve someone in need. Helpfulness is a continual attempt to better a situation, to be a part of the solution for someone. Always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus, verses 16 through 18. Paul here gives a series of commands that are to be followed repeatedly. These commands summarize the attitude that we as believers are to have. How do we know that this is to be our attitude? Well, because we're told that this is God's will for us if we belong to Christ. First, be joyful. The word perhaps ought to be translated, be cheerful. Don't let things get you down. Society is filled with despair and gloom. Many are at the end of their ropes. The pressures under which we live today can do this. But as Christians, we have an inner resource. There, therefore, we can obey the word of James. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. James 1.2. Don't take it as a personal attack. Don't moan and think, what have I done to deserve this? Instead, purposely rejoice because you know that it's good for you. Trials make us grow and make us face ourselves and learn things about ourselves we need to know and to deal with. Unfortunately, getting everything we think we need and traversing a smooth road doesn't lead to spiritual growth. More is the pity. That is what James goes on to say. When your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. James 1.4. Dr. Arthur Halliday, who had a ministry too and worked tirelessly with AIDS patients in San Francisco in the early 1980s, tells the story of his life. As a young physician, he thought the world was his oyster. He was cocky and self-confident, and he thought that he could do anything he wanted. Then things began to fall apart. His marriage failed, he lost his home, and he had to put out hundreds of thousands of dollars and had nothing to show for it. As trial after trial hit, he began to realize that life was tougher than he had imagined and he found that he simply couldn't handle it. After two broken marriages, he met a woman who knew the Lord, and by God's grace, she led him into a relationship with Christ. That's when he began to grow up, 
until he displayed a beautiful character demonstrated in his compassionate labors for those suffering with AIDS. It was the trials he went through that changed him. That's why James states, when trials come, we should rejoice because God is going to teach us something that will be of great value. Second, Paul tells us to be prayerful. Never stop praying. The Greek adverb translated without ceasing or never stop is one used to describe a hacking cough. How many of us can relate to this description? In the same way that a hacking cough is always there, we are to continue to pray frequently. Paul wasn't expecting his readers to be in prayer every minute around the clock, but to continue to pray regularly and often. As Leon Morris stated in his commentary on First and Second Thessalonians, if we live in this way, conscious continually of our dependence on God, conscious of his presence with us always, conscious of his will to bless, then our general spirit of prayerfulness will in the most natural way overflow into uttered prayer. It is instructive to read again and again in Paul's letters the many prayers that he interjects. Prayer was as natural to Paul as breathing. At any time, he was likely to break off his argument or to sum it up by some prayer of greater or less length. In the same way, our lives can be lived in such an attitude of dependence on God that we will easily and naturally move into the words of prayer on all sorts of occasions, great and small, grave and gay. Prayer is to be constant, end quote. Then third, be thankful. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Christians need to give thanks about everything, knowing that God is working together all things for his people who love him. Romans 8:28. Why be thankful? Because when you are faced with a trial, you are being given an opportunity to glorify God. If you never face trials, how can anyone ever see that you have a means of support, that you have a reliable source of strength in the Lord? These are opportunities that God gives us to seek him and rely on him alone. When the early Christian leaders were arrested, they were beaten for their faith, and they left rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to bear suffering for Christ's sake. That is a thoroughly Christian attitude, and that is how we ought to face our trials. Notice how Paul underlines this. For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. The will of God is not to make some dramatic display of power that is going to attract attention. It is the quiet response you make to the daily trials and circumstance in which you find yourself. Twice in this letter, we have read this phrase, this is God's will. We saw it first in chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul says, God's will is for you to be holy, to stay away from all sexual sin. That's God's will for your body. But here is God's will for your spirit, your inner life, that you give thanks in all circumstances. If you want to do the will of God, 
These are the two areas in which his will is clearly set out for you. Moral purity for your body, continual thanksgiving for your spirit. The next section deals with how to react toward the guidance God gives you. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Verses 19 through 22. Two admonitions. Don't ignore the Spirit's prompting and don't despise the Scripture's wisdom. The Spirit's promptings always come in two areas. Stop doing what's wrong. Start doing what's right. If you are a Christian, you're familiar with the inner feeling that says, God wants me to stop something or God wants me to start doing something. We all have felt this inner guidance. What the apostle is saying is, give in to those feelings. When the spirit prompts you to, for example, show love to somebody, do it. Don't hold back. Then second, do not ignore the scripture's wisdom. Do not scoff at prophecies. Unfortunately, because of certain cultic tendencies in our day, we think of prophesying as some special power to predict the future, either for ourselves individually or for the world at large. But prophesying was not that. Dr. F. F. Bruce, a Scottish biblical scholar, describes prophesying as declaring the mind of God in the power of the Spirit. In the early days of the church, before the New Testament was written, this was done orally. Prophets spoke the mind of the Spirit in an assembly. But since the writing of the scriptures, we have very little need for any kind of prophesying other than that based upon the scriptures. So prophesying really becomes what we call today expository preaching and teaching. Paul warns us not to belittle or reject that. That is the wisdom of God. That is telling you how to act, how to think, and how to order your life. Don't treat it lightly. It will save you countless headaches and heartaches if you observe it. Paul also encourages us to test everything that is said. Anyone can stand up and say in a deep tone of voice, this is the word of the Lord. We must learn to test what is said from what has already been revealed. Paul commended the Bereans for this, saying they were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica because they listened eagerly to Paul's message and they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Acts 17, 11. Compare everything you hear to the Bible. You know, when federal agents are being taught to recognize counterfeit money, they spend hours upon hours looking at authentic money. They can recognize counterfeit money because they are intimately acquainted with what real money looks like. This is the same principle Paul is speaking of here. All sorts of people are trying to tell us what God says on any given topic. The best way to be able to root out false teachings is to be intimately acquainted with the truths of Scripture. Study your Bible so that you can test what you hear against the truth of Scripture. Now may the God of peace 
make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. Verses 23 and 24. The human spirit is the part of us that enables us to communicate with God. The human soul makes us conscious of ourselves. The human body is the physical part that expresses the inner person. These aren't the only elements that constitute humanity. There is also heart, mind, conscious, will, emotions, etc. But these are the ones that Paul chose to refer to here. He may have mentioned spirit, soul, and body because these three point to the believer's relationships to God, to themselves, and to other people. Together, they picture wholeness. Paul's desire was that every part of them involving all their relationships would remain without fault and that they would continue to mature and live in a blameless manner until Christ's return. All through this letter, the great hope set before us is that Jesus is coming again. Paul was confident that God would do this sanctifying work in the Thessalonians through the Holy Spirit. God is able to minister to the whole man, spirit, soul, and body. Choose to obey, and he will give you the power to perform. But he won't give you that power until you make obedience your choice. Our sanctification will be complete when we see the Lord and are glorified, whether at the rapture or at our death. Dear brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a sacred kiss. I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Verses 25 through 28. Paul added this final postscript in order to encourage three more loving actions and to stress one basic attitude. Paul believed that intercessory prayer would move God to do things that he would not otherwise do. The theologian D. Edmund Hybert said, the ministry of prayer is the most important service that the church of Christ can engage in. Paul would heartily agree, and he humbly asked them to enter into his ministry by praying for him. He then encouraged them to greet each other with a sacred or a holy kiss. This was a sign of brotherly affection and unity in Christ that he wanted them to continue to practice. Paul recognized the edifying value of this letter, so he charged that it be read aloud to the entire congregation, not just the leadership. This would make sure that everyone in the congregation heard his instruction. Paul closes 1 Thessalonians saying, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul's expressed desire was that the unmerited favor of God would continue to be the Thessalonians' experience and source of joy. What a reminder that all we are and all we will ever be is the result of the grace of the Lord. We need to be reminded that we don't deserve his grace and it's only by his grace that he works in our lives to bring us to maturity. 
It's by his grace that we're able to handle anything we are confronted with in our lives. Paul's message to the Thessalonians is the same for us 2,000 years later. We are to be faithful to the word of God, to be discerning between the things of God and the things of Satan, and to remember that God is working in each of his children to bring us into his presence without blame. So are you a child of God? If you are, then you have been forgiven your sins and will spend eternity in God's presence. You have a responsibility to live in obedience to his word and to follow the instructions that Paul has outlined for us in this letter to the Thessalonians. If you are not a child of God, then you are lost in your sin, destined for an eternity in hell, separated from God for eternity. In order to be forgiven, you must see yourself as the sinner God says you are. And place your faith in the person and work of his son alone for salvation. When you do that, you will be born into the family of God for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful study in 1 Thessalonians. Thank you for each of these ladies, Lord. I pray that we'll be as the Bereans and that we'll test all that we hear against your truth in Scripture. I pray, Lord, that we'll study to know your Scripture so well that we won't be duped by false teaching. And I pray that the truths we learn will dwell in our hearts and be applied to our daily living. In your precious name I pray, amen. Thank you, ladies.